0: Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan, And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger.
1: 20 years ago, in response to the attacks of September 11th, the United States embarked on what would become its longest war in Afghanistan. The world is watched, transfixed, horrified, as that war came to a brutal end, with deaths, evacuations, broken promises, recriminations, And a lot of soul searching.
0: That's right, Siva. And we're doing some soul searching of our own with a series of episodes trying to figure out what it has taught us and what we have learned, if anything. You know, for a lot of Americans watching as diplomats escape from the embassy in Kabul and as the U.S. military is racing to airlift many people out of Afghanistan, there's no question that for people of a certain age, and yes, that includes us, One image from the past stood out, and that's the fall of Saigon in April April 1975. The last American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees fleeing before the advancing communist armies.
1: Yeah, I mean, the parallels with Vietnam are striking. Except this time around, let's face it, most Americans simply weren't that interested in what was going on in Afghanistan day to day. There was no military draft. There was no big sustained anti-war movement. There were far fewer American deaths. And most of the effort in recent years involved training Afghan forces and providing security and, you know, trying to prop up what was ultimately a flimsy national government. And of course, negotiating, and failing in negotiations
0: with the Taliban.
1: We have
2: a message to any possible invader that anyone who looks to Afghanistan with bad intentions, they will face what the United States has faced today.
0: You know, we dress that up by calling it nation-building. Uh, Certainly, I think we all remember George W. Bush liked to invoke the humanitarian aspect of what was going on in Afghanistan, like like saving Afghan women.
1: one, One of the most brutal regimes, brutal regimes.
0: We were promoting human rights and democracy, and the mission kind of creeped from fighting terrorism to then eliminating, you know, a safe haven for terrorism, but then trying to turn Afghanistan, apparently, into a functioning democracy. which.
3: The international community will have a new partner.
0: Remember the cost. An
3: interim government of a new Afghanistan.
0: Together, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq will cost the United States some $8 trillion.
1: Well, we we really need to think more deeply about what we just went through and about its historical parallels, the perils of state building, of democracy building. Toward that end, we have invited two historians to join us today. Sarah Snyder is with us from American University in Washington, D.C. She specializes in international relations and human rights and is the author most recently of From Selma to Moscow, How Human Rights Activists Transformed U.S. Foreign Policy. Sarah, welcome to
0: Democracy in Danger.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And we have Mark Lawrence from the University of Texas at Austin. He's an expert on the Vietnam War and the presidency of Lyndon Johnson. His new book, due out this fall, is The End of Ambition, the United States and the Third World in the Vietnam Era. Mark, thank you so much for joining
2: us. Thanks for having me, Will. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, Mark and Sarah, both of you have written widely on U.S. policy in the post-1945 world. Can I ask each of you, in turn... What thoughts have you been having these past few weeks as you've watched the U.S. withdraw from its longest war in Afghanistan? Sarah, what, what's what been going through your mind?
3: The first thing that's been going through my mind when I was watching sort of every night scenes of evacuation from Kabul was this film, The Last Days of Vietnam, that I often show to my students um, that shows that the the evacuation from, from Vietnam wasn't just in Saigon and it wasn't just sort of this iconic um photograph, uh, that it was it was much more widespread and much more ongoing. And, and that really then makes me turn uh, to Amanda Demmer's uh, recent book, which argues that the evacuation isn't the end, um, but the beginning of something new, um, the beginning of a refugee and humanitarian phase, um, and even the potential transformation of the United States as so many people come um, and immigrate uh, to this country. And so I'm also wondering if, if the evacuation... In the long run, uh, will be seen as a moment, as opposed to the end, um, but potentially the beginning of, of something new um, that you know may require sustained American attention in different ways, um, but likely sustained American attention and investment uh, for years to come.
1: And let's not forget the the. It was also the beginning of a lot of trauma in Southeast Asia with the Chinese invasion of Vietnam. The genocide in Cambodia, uh, more more turmoil in Laos. I mean, the war didn't really stop there. It just changed. Absolutely. So, Mark, how about you?
2: Well, I think my dominant emotion as I've watched all this play out in the recent days has been a feeling of, of real sadness for the people who will suffer the consequences of this moment for a long time to come. As Sarah mentions, I think very astutely, for us, it may feel like the end of something, but for a lot of folks who have no real choices, it's the beginning of something that is going to probably profoundly alter their life chances and their, their opportunities going forward. But it's also, you know, to look at it from the American standpoint, I think the end of a really disappointing and sad period of setback that runs back now 20 years. I think it's a little overly dramatic, perhaps, but there's something in the idea that this really does mark the end of a 20 year period when the United States tried, tried hard at great expense, both human and in terms of the financial cost to achieve results in the greater Middle East that ultimately proved to be beyond our capabilities.
0: Mark, you've just, uh... Written a book that will be out very soon about the lessons that American foreign policymakers drew from the Vietnam War. And in, in your telling of the tale, uh, they were chastened and they, with, they pulled back a little bit from their ambitions of the 50s and the early 60s. But I want, before we get to the, the chastened part, I want you to remind our audience a little bit about what it was that propelled American policymakers to take such big Steps in the wider world in the early Cold War era. Why did America seek opportunities to democratize, to build nations around the world, to invest dollars and American lives in creating these sort of outposts, as they called them, of freedom? Tell us a little bit about the ideology of the of the era that would have
2: made America seem so ambitious. Well, I think the United States comes out of the Second World War with a justifiably strong sense of its ability to project power and influence and ideological purpose all over the world. And of course, this is a type of behavior that we in the 21st century, I think, take for granted about our nation. But of course, this was something very new in the middle of the 20th century. Um, The United States emerges from that, that searing experience of the Second World War, with boundless confidence, I think, in many ways, in what it can achieve internationally. And it's worth bearing in mind as well that, of course, the years following the Second World War are years of decolonization, when new nations are coming into existence um, you know, year after year, especially in the late 1950s and early 1960s, but really across this entire uh, post-1945 era. And what this means, I think, is that Americans perceive this vast new arena where they can bring their ideological purpose and their resources and their manpower to bear in a way that will uplift these societies. And of course, in the process, inoculate them against any temptation of going over to the communist bloc. So the Cold War clearly has a lot to do with how Americans behave. But I think that American behavior goes beyond simply um, the, the dynamics of the Cold War and reflected a boundless confidence that the United States could achieve almost anything it put its mind to um, to help poor and, um, uh, as Americans sought backward countries to achieve political and economic uplift.
0: Let me just follow up a little bit, Mark. I mean, talk about what the Vietnam War did to these ambitious hopes of nation-building. I mean, the war, we know, ripped up the domestic fabric of American society in many respects and, and significantly altered the course of American domestic politics. Did it really bring about a fundamental change in in the way the U.S. has engaged with the world? How, how do you see the short-term impact on the way American foreign policymakers would see the world right after the Vietnam War?
2: Well, I think the Vietnam War brought about a profound change, but not a permanent change. So the war produces a very significant pulling back from many of those ambitions that I was just speaking about. But one doesn't have to look too far down the road in the 1980s and indeed in the 1990s and and the early 21st century to see that Americans regained a lot of that confidence that was lost as a consequence of the Vietnam War. Unfortunately, I think we could say we've had to, in many ways, relearn the same lessons that Vietnam taught us a generation ago in more recent times. But And what did these changes consist? Like, give us an example of how American foreign policy
0: in the 70s um, looked different from the ambitions of the 50s and early 60s.
2: Sure. I think uh, American leaders, and really, you can see this in public opinion as well, the American public more generally, really backs away from that bold sense of profound uh, socioeconomic uplift and political uplift and democratization, indeed, in many places. Americans sour on the possibility of using American power to achieve those things. They also uh, are, are experiencing in these years real economic setbacks which make them more pessimistic about the ability simply of the United States to play that role regardless of what its intentions and its aspirations may be. So by the early 1970s, What uh, I think you see very clearly is the United States settling instead for the creation or at least the affirmation of stability around the world. What Americans crave is really um, a world freer of crises that will be draining for the United States and draw the United States into endless problems like Vietnam, even if that means forging partnerships with anti-democratic nations. Could that mean coups d'etat and the occasional malfeasance? Absolutely. And exactly as you say, you see across the late 1960s a number of coups. Uh, I write, for example, about the coup in 1964 in Brazil that puts an end to a very fluid uh, political situation in that country and brings to power a very authoritarian military regime. I also write about Indonesia, which I think is maybe the single most striking example of this kind of behavior in the middle and late 1960s as Americans are taking account of uh, the difficulties of achieving their ambitions in the third world. The United States supports, uh, in a very similar way to what plays out in Brazil, a military coup that, um, through a very complicated series of events, brings to power a new regime that winds up cooperating very, very closely with the United States. This was a deeply authoritarian regime that certainly had a terrible human rights record, very much like the generals in Brazil. But America Americans were comfortable with that, at least for a time, because the new regime promised to put an end to an area of great turmoil, but also even to cooperate as a new regional power that could manage American interests on behalf of Washington in an important part of the world.
1: Right, right. Let's not forget the Dominican Republic as well, right? And Linda Johnson, while escalating in Vietnam, basically invaded the Dominican Republic and installed a military government there as well. So, Sarah, um, one of the threads that has run through U.S. foreign policy since 1945 has been this uh, sort of moralistic, almost missionary idea that the United States promotes human rights around the world. And of course, that idea has waxed and waned uh, with administrations. But it's, you know, it's a fairly constant and present idea invoked when needed by U.S. presidents trying to justify their various interventions. So how have Americans come to see themselves as promoting or embodying this right? What's the role of this rhetorical move in implanting values around the world? What's the success rate?
3: I would say in terms of thinking about kind of how did Americans come to see themselves as having this right that at least if we're talking about the late 1940s, I don't think of it as as unilateralist. I think that Americans who were involved in this project would have said that this was um, a sort of international commitment to greater protection of human rights, and that they were um, advancing shared values um, that were shared among many different uh, democracies, as well as peoples more broadly, and um, that this was a joint project. And I Think you know if we think about people like Eleanor Roosevelt and who she was collaborating with and the drafting of the UN uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, she was working together with people um, from all over the world, and this wasn't, I would say, um, a kind of American-driven project. Um, and I think that as time has moved on, you know, ideas about the utility of the UN in advancing human rights. Um, have changed, uh, and and there's probably less support within the United States for seeing the UN as the institution that's going to offer the greatest protection of human rights, which is how we see maybe um, a bit more pressure on the United States to lead on human rights issues.
1: So how's that going?
3: Well, I mean, I think that there's, there's sort of multiple strains of that. Um, one is how much External audiences really believe that when the United States talks about human rights and advancing human rights, that it's doing so for the benefit of foreign peoples rather than, you know, sort of some of the issues that Mark was alluding to, which is the advancement of America's strategic interests, you know. And part of it is we have the history of, of some of these um, events that that he's talking about where the people of Indonesia are are completely Right to be skeptical of American claims for universal human rights, just as the people in Brazil are and the people in Chile and the people in Greece. I mean, unfortunately, um, since the 1940s, there's a long record of the United States trampling rights um, when it advances other interests rather than um, having a sort of full and robust commitment to human rights for all peoples at all times right
1: and we I mean we could turn to Afghanistan as well right so the president best known for flying the human rights flag in foreign policy Jimmy Carter initially funded the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in 1979 which uh, over time transformed into the Taliban in fact armed the Taliban uh, and and has had all sorts of a blowback that anyone who adopts any sort of universalist picture of human rights has to be appalled by, right? So is a human rights agenda even workable when a nation like the United States has so many tentacles, so many interests, sometimes conflicting interests in places like Afghanistan, which are in itself uh, much more morally complex than we tend to uh, allow?
3: I think the question there is, what is a human rights agenda? And what human rights activists were pushing for was that it would be an issue that would be considered, that it would be institutionalized, that in every decision, the human rights consequences would be um, would be thought through. So that's why they wanted there to be human rights officers within the State Department, why they wanted there to be annual reporting on the human rights records of countries that we are giving security or economic assistance to, not that human rights would trump all other issues but that we had to weigh human rights and the human rights consequences of our foreign policy. So I think, for me, that's a human rights agenda. And I think we saw with the last administration a real shift away from the idea that human rights should be considered at all. Um, And President Biden has said that he will change that. I don't think he's saying human rights is going to be his number one priority always, but that, again, it's going to be an issue that's considered in all decision-making.
0: Sarah, can I ask you a question about human rights as an agenda, as a foreign policy, in your view, who is the main audience for America's human rights language and discourse? Is it Americans? Is it the UN? Is it the people who are, who are supposed to benefit from this human rights agenda?
3: Well, so I would say I don't think it's the UN at all. That's the easy part. <laughs> uh, after that, I you know I think there are two very important audiences, and one of them is the American public, who has said again and again in, um, in opinion polling that it believes that uh, it is important for the United States to share its values and champion those values around the world. The means by which the United States does that, I wouldn't say there's as much agreement on, but the American public thinks it's important that the United States be seen as a beacon of democracy and of human rights. The external audiences are also incredibly important. Um, What we've seen is that when the United States is identified as being on the side of repressive governments, when it's seen as supporting coups that lead to military dictatorships, when it's seen as selling military equipment that's then deployed against, say, students demonstrating in the streets, that that leads to generations of anti-Americanism, which makes the world less safe for U.S. interests and for Americans in the world. Right. I mean, just to give you an example, you know, it's a very conscious decision that terrorists in the Middle East are making when they robe their um, their hostages in the orange jumpsuits that detainees at Guantanamo Bay wear. It's an explicit comparison of what the United States is doing and what they're doing. And that is dangerous. It's dangerous for American journalists. It's dangerous for American contractors. And it's just dangerous for the image of the United States internationally. So I think that these two audiences, um, you know, one may have higher Benefits to American leaders in terms of kind of electoral and um, popular support, but the other has real, real cost to the United States if the United States is seen as a country that regularly violates human rights.
0: I love that uh, point, Sarah. That look, one photograph of a detainee in a in a cage in an orange jumpsuit under dubious legal grounds can undermine decades of patient uh, negotiations and behind-the-scenes work on developing and spreading a human rights agenda.
3: Absolutely.
1: Sarah I'm really curious about the invocation of soft power the the uh, application of soft power in the post 45 years as well right we we you know we remember the uh, uh, the Kennedy era's emphasis on hearts and minds in Southeast Asia right this is the way to beat communism by showing people even in the countryside that that uh, democracy and and open markets are, are 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 the key to the good life right and and we've seen this time and time again as the United States has exercised its soft power either through non-governmental organizations or direct support for interest groups in particular countries or or even, you know, propaganda uh, and, and, and we've seen it in patchwork around the world and yet we've also seen blowback, right? So, so every time there are protests in the streets of Tehran – the government of iran you know blames outside influences and agitators and if a us president or a secretary of state voices support for those protest movements it ends up hurting those protest movements and we've seen similar blowback recently against ngos in 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 within the 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 russian empire right the new russian empire we've seen it in hungary we're starting to see it in india uh, is soft power as it's been recognized and utilized since World War II, uh, 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 an effective uh, instrument of foreign policy anymore?
3: I think it is. And um, and I think, you know, going back to your earlier question, when you're talking about the protests in Tehran, there are multiple audiences, right? And one of them is the government there. One of them is domestic, right? I mean, a secretary of state like Hillary Clinton can't remain silent if she wants to convince people within the United States that the United States cares about the plight of protesters in Tehran. But she also needs to be offering support, uh, moral support to those who are out on the streets. Uh, And we saw this during the Cold War that uh, dissidents say in the Soviet Union who were imprisoned once they were free, were asked, you know, is it better or worse for someone like Jimmy Carter to be raising your case internationally, and to be speaking out about what's going on? Does it harm you? Um, as, as some people who advocated for quiet diplomacy uh, would say, or is it better? And, and again and again, they said, it makes me more safe for people to know that the international community is watching. It means that I may get marginally better medical care in prison. I may have marginally better conditions. I'm less likely to be murdered in prison because the international community will react. And so even if soft power doesn't always produce the results that we might like, I think it's incredibly important uh, for those who are advocating for change, that policymakers and members of the public support them in their campaigns, um, and that also the U.S. government models appropriate behavior of what it would like these other countries um, to be pursuing, whether it's the treatment of journalists within the United States, um, the treatment of asylum seekers, uh, the treatment of historically marginalized groups. I think soft power remains incredibly important.
0: Mark, I want to come back to you and talk a little bit more about this this history of democratization and and nation building that America has had such a you know, a long history with and, and difficulties with. Take us from that period that you write about when America is kind of thinking about restraint, the end of ambition, to the, to the reversal of that. The, pe- the pendulum swings and suddenly um, we are off and running in two major wars in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, from uh, 2001 on. How on earth did we get from the era of restraint and cynicism to this era of enormous ambition. uh, And once again, as if Vietnam had never happened, as if the lessons of the mid-century had never been learned. What fueled all this?
2: Yeah, it's it's a wonderful question. And I think that this turn of the cycle back in the direction of stability almost at any cost produces in turn a new backlash, but for both political, domestic political and international reasons, that nudges the country back in the other direction. I think it's really the the Reagan presidency, the Reagan period that brings back that sense of ambition. I think in that period, there's this attempt in many ways to turn back the clock to the less complicated era before the Vietnam War had muddied everything up. And the end of the Cold War, which many Americans experience as this triumphant moment that vindicates American uh, ideological purpose, the American role in the world has a powerfully affirming effect on all that uh, had had transpired in the 1980s, and gives Americans a new jolt of of confidence that their way had been right all along. Their notion of how the world should be reformed, how foreign societies should be restructured, um, is, had had been vindicated by by history. And then I think there is a third um, important moment with the September 11th attacks of, of 2001, which I think left Americans with a strong sense of uh, self-righteousness and victimhood that led them to discard any lingering reservations they might have had about the ways in which American power can be used internationally. The threat to the United States seems so dire that no longer could we, um, you know, put much stock in those lingering reservations. And so the the combination of these three forces that play out over an extended period really, I think, help explain the energized sense of ambition that we see so powerfully in the first decade of the 21st century.
0: Guys, let me me bring us to the last question of this much too short conversation. Um, I want to bring the war back home and ask you both what you think the ramifications of the last 20 years of external conflict uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq will be or have been uh, on domestic politics and society. We just had Spencer Ackerman on who gave us a very dark view of the uh, domestic political consequences from the point of view of the surveillance state and, and so on. Um, but you guys are historians in particular of the Vietnam era, and and you've tallied up the ways in which foreign policy and especially foreign policy blunders can create transformations inside the United States. Do you see any parallels there? Do you see any ways in which the forever wars will echo and register uh, in our domestic politics and society? Sarah?
3: Well I think in terms of um, the impact on domestic politics and society, I completely echo the dark vision that it sounds like uh, Spencer Ackerman gave you you know if we talk about the ways in which American domestic, Politics have changed, you know. I I would point to a lack of full and transparent investigation about the use of torture. Um, that's something that American politicians have wanted to just move on from, rather than investigate and learn lessons from. I would say the indefinite detention of detainees um, at Guantanamo Bay obviously continues. That's not something that the United States has been recently working very hard to address, despite the the very negative I think um, consequences for. The United States internationally as well as domestically, the broad erosion of civil liberties within the United States, um, I think, is a is a very significant legacy of those wars as well. And what I think really what we need is is an effort to take stock of why those decisions were made, how, um, when confronted with threats in the future, we might make more rational um, and reasoned policies to respond to them. I, you know, I'll, I'll be interested to see what happens. But when I teach about human rights, um, you know, we talk about again and again that for sort of the decades of, of the 1980s and particularly of the 1990s, the specter of Vietnam and what another ground war in some place might mean loomed over policymakers' heads. And I think it will be interesting to see if if there's much greater caution by American policymakers in the way they respond to humanitarian or, or human rights crises in the future because of a lack of appetite for interventions abroad.
1: Right. So, Mark, um, you know, in our in our first season uh, of this podcast, we interviewed historian Kathleen Bellew, uh, and she told a gripping story of the, uh, the the rise and transformation of white nationalist movements uh, in the wake of the end of the Vietnam War has veterans returned and then with the reimposition of a new set of veterans through the various uh, wars and activities of the 1980s and 90s you know we 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 have had in this country since 1975 a very active and dangerous white nationalist set of movements uh, which now seem you know federated through uh through various internet means That's one of the ways that we can say that the fallout from American intervention in Southeast Asia has undermined life in America and democracy in America and rights in America and has warped us as a country. Are you concerned about similar fallout after 20 years of what seemed to have been until recently forever wars? (laughs) No.
2: I am concerned about that, yes. And I think it's absolutely something to watch and take very seriously. And the parallels to the 1970s that we may see play out in in the coming years are, are absolutely disturbing. That said, I would urge us to think about the possibility that what we're likely to see is a whole lot of continuity. I think that this impulse to activism, to ambition, to uplift, is baked so deeply into American political culture and ideology that though we may be seeing a retreat these days from some of those certainties, just as we saw a retreat from those certainties in the late 60s and early 1970s, they haven't gone anywhere. And the capabilities that the United States has, I mean, hundreds of bases in 80 countries around the world have not gone anywhere either. I I would be the first to argue that what we need is a really sustained debate about the level of military force that is really necessary to preserve and protect American interests around the world and how to balance those costs in in terms of the American budget and against other priorities that may be more in in the domestic arena. But I would suggest we're likely to see very familiar patterns play out in the years to come and that the political advantages for many candidates for office will continue to lie on the side of urging Americans to do more in the world, to see their country as capable of bringing answers to foreign societies and even to achieve nation building. We'll probably be back there before too long, I would suggest.
3: If I could just echo Mark's optimism about what might come in the future. You know, he was saying uh, American capabilities, he mentioned American military bases, but to sort of keep beating my soft power drum, I would say American universities and American technology companies and American cultural products, like we have the tools to have an incredibly robust soft power presence going forward um, and affecting young people all over the world um, with American values and ideals. And so there is potentially um, a lot to be positive about if the United States wasn't consumed uh, with fighting two military conflicts.
2: I was going to say, the happiest outcome, it seems to me, of recent events would be if Americans broadly learned the lesson that our real strengths as a country lie in the arena of soft power, that those are the assets that have made the biggest difference over the last 50 or 60 years. Um, It's going to take some effort to get to a place where we trust the principles um, for which you know the United States allegedly stands and um, which do echo uh, to some extent in foreign countries, uh, to, to allow those to do our work for us and to be less um, proactive with military force, I think would be a step very much in the right direction. But the, where I would be pessimistic is in suggesting that I doubt that we are headed in that direction. I think that old patterns will be very very hard to overcome.
1: Well Mark Lawrence, Sarah Snyder, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you.
1: Mark Lawrence is a historian of Vietnam and the Vietnam era, He works at the University of Texas at Austin, and he is the director of the Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Library. Mark's new book is The End of
0: Ambition. Sarah Snyder is a professor of history at American University's School of International Service, and the author most recently of From Selma to Moscow, How Human Rights Activists Transformed U.S. Foreign Policy. Democracy
1: in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends.
3: Hi, I'm Jane Frankel, an intern on Democracy in Danger. This week, we wanted to let you know about one of our most important partners this year, the podcast Democracy Works from Penn State. Since 2018, Democracy Works has been shining a light on self-government with powerful conversations on big picture topics like neoliberalism, gerrymandering, and ranked choice voting. Past guests on the show include Atlantic staff writer Ann Applebaum, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, and jazz great Wynton Marsalis. Give Democracy Works a listen and help support our network. Search Democracy Works in your podcast player and catch up on more than 150 episodes. New shows drop every Monday.
0: Well, Siva, getting out of Afghanistan, To us, looks a lot like getting out of Vietnam, but are we really going to face the same long period of withdrawal and restraint and caution and an internal debate about, golly, what's our role in the world? It seems to me that the lack of domestic consequences, the relatively low numbers of American deaths, uh, the uh, lack of a major anti-war movement might actually sort of, you know, leave us without the great national reckoning that we ought to have. You know, we we think a lot about the alleged hesitancy
1: of foreign intervention after Vietnam. We we certainly talk a lot about it, but look in reality, that period lasted all of five years, right? By by the time we get to 1980, President Carter has instituted a very activist, a very interventionist foreign policy, even if he stopped short of committing large ground forces to various places around the world, including Iran and Afghanistan, uh, Central America, etc. cetera. And then President Reagan could not have been more activist supporting uh, paramilitary troops, supporting death squads, supporting brutal dictators as bulwarks in American foreign policy or instigators in American foreign policy. So we did it at one degree of separation. But we still were responsible for a lot of bloodshed and a lot of efforts along with – and I think this is really important – a very creative array of what we've called soft power interventions around the world, ranging, again, from propaganda to education to support for human rights groups, support for women's rights groups, support for uh, uh, Jewish rights groups. uh, And we have seen a real patchwork – of successes and failures from that effort as well.
0: The thing that I'm concerned about is our glorification of the military. One of the consequences of the last 20 years has been a political polarization. But what is the one institution in American life that overwhelmingly, poll after poll shows us, uh, Americans admire? It's the military. And even after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, that's still going to be the same. There is going to be that itch to send American troops abroad in order to claim the greatness in order to project American power around the world. And I worry that by denigrating our political process and glorifying our military institutions, we've left ourselves very vulnerable to the temptation always to resort to hard power first and forget a little bit about the benefits of of relying on soft power.
1: While we have seen a valorization of militarization – Being active in the military is now limited to a very small slice of the American public, a very small slice based on class, based on geography, based in many ways on race. And so most American families don't have anyone who serves in the military. And that means we have a sense of a lower stake, a lower potential cost for military intervention. It's someone else's child who will serve in a country far away. And we can sit back and watch it all roll out on CNN.
0: It's always been tempting to say that, hey, if you want to have more restraints placed on the use of American power in the world, have a draft, have a mandatory national service. That would act as a powerful restraining force on sending uh, American soldiers abroad if those American soldiers were a broad representation of all of America. I I, I see the argument. I don't know if you agree, but um, at the same time, I'm not really sure I want a draft either.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, when I was an 18, 19-year-old man in America, the last thing I wanted was a draft. Uh, I do see it differently now in the sense that uh, if we had a draft that one could not, exempt oneself from because of the uh, fortune of one's birth, (laughs) whether that means you happen to have a friend in the National Guard like George W. Bush did uh, or you happen to be able to stay in college and get a Rhodes Scholarship uh, like Bill Clinton did, uh, then it might actually have a, a positive social effect and we might be more wary about committing everyone's child to that sort of risk. I I think there are probably easier, less traumatic ways to achieve the goal of having a more cautious and a smarter American foreign policy and military policy with better information, more historical perspective, uh, and uh, and just a wiser sense of the costs and benefits
0: of American intervention. I'm optimistic about one thing in all this, and that is that over the last four or five years, we have seen in this country major social movements emerge in a very brief period of time that suggests the power of mobilization and suggests the power of dissent. The next time around there is an ill-conceived foreign war, there might yet be a more effective anti-war movement that could also spring up. The muscle memory is now in place for greater degree of activism so that the conversation can be uh, more robust and more profound.
1: I would also say having you know roots in the colonies, <laughs> as uh, we 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 have to be wary of any sort of universalist message, that there is one way of life, that there is one vision of the good life, and one clear, concise set of human rights that are going to be broadly popular or valued around the world. So to execute soft power, I think we need a lot of granularity, a lot of specificity. We have to pay attention not only to political scientists and international relations people, uh, but we have to pay attention to anthropologists and sociologists and journalists and people who have paid attention to what individual communities need around the world at a particular time. That's all for today's show. Next time, we will dig deeper into another story that's been largely forgotten, the U.S. occupation in the early 20th century
0: of Haiti. The United States was becoming one of the major powers, you know, and it's a very racist administration. They look at Haiti and they say, well, enough of this and we are going to take it over. Use your own soft power to spread the word about our show. You can subscribe on any podcast app Leave a review there and share us with your friends. Our webpage is dindanger.org. There you'll find links to related
1: readings, more about our guests, notes about all of our shows from last season, and hints
0: about what's coming up. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengold with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow.
1: Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. It's distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville.
0: I'm Siva Sivavadianata. And I'm Will Hitchcock. Until next time.